read from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, and then we will read on through to chapter 4, verse 1. So please follow along with me. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, it is such an exciting thing to be in your word together as your people. And as we've been talking about the practices of the Christian life, how we do these things in your presence. Lord, you are with us, you are in us, you are among us. You speak to us through your word. Your Holy Spirit fills us with life anew in Christ, power to proclaim him and to live this impossible life apart from you. And so, Lord, now as we look to our true citizenship, I pray, Father, today you would establish in our hearts a zeal for and an excitement of and, and the great, greater than any sense of patriotism we can have over being U.S. citizens. Lord, let us Rejoice in our citizenship in Christ, in his kingdom, that we are together your people. Lord, help us as we consider imitating those around us that hold this example of Paul. Help us as we consider those who are around us in, in our communities who are destined for destruction, as your word says. As terrifying as that is, Lord, let us be empowered by the hope of the transformation we will experience when Christ returns and that we are fully his. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our last look at Philippians just before Thanksgiving, which was a while ago now, right? We've had three holidays since then. Dealt in part with Christian maturity, pressing on and enduring in the race as we move closer and closer towards Christ. Considering our citizenship, and how we interact with each other as we move toward the realization of that citizenship is where we're headed today. Being new citizens of Lima, Ohio has created a very accessible illustration for both my family and myself. We who were very comfortable where we were now find ourselves, as we trust in the Lord, able to embrace the joy of a new citizenship in a different place. Now, if you're not native to Lima, or maybe you've gone for a while and you've returned once again, you can identify with that concept. Having a different house, a different neighborhood, gas station, grocery store, restaurants, landscape, etc. Everything is different when you take on a new citizenship. I cannot say that I am a citizen of the Akron area anymore because I'm not. I know a lot about the area that I grew up in and lived in for 31 years, but I'm not a citizen there anymore. It's a dramatic change. All my memories, my family, my friends, they're all still there, yes. But I'm no longer a citizen there. I'm now a citizen of Lima, Ohio. 
Then you consider, in light of all these changes that happen when you move, you consider things like church. And we felt we've been graciously and kindly welcomed as part of your family. We thank you for that immensely. With all the changes that come with a big move, you find that even in your local church, even though your local church family has changed, in a gospel-centered church, new friendships arise quickly. God's people are God's people wherever they are. And he is the one who is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God, is what 2 Corinthians 1.4 says. And so as we receive that comfort from the Lord, everything else we receive from him is likewise. It's, it's determined by the will of the Lord, and it's given to us not only to our benefit, but to the benefit of others as well. Think about Philippians 2, verse 1 through 3. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So hopefully you'll remember this passage from a few months ago. But what Paul gives us here is a long list of reasoning and motivation to do what he tells us to do. The imperative phrase here is, complete my joy. How am I going to do that? Christian unity within the church. And what's my motivation again? What's the purpose behind all this? Why should I feel that it's that important of a thing to be unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because in Christ, there is encouragement there is comfort from love. There's participation in the Spirit of God. My friends, angelic beings in all their own created by God glory do not have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, empowering them. The angels in all their glory were not made in the image of God himself. And yet we are. And that image is restored in us in Christ. There are great reasons to embrace this idea of gospel unity within our community as we recognize our citizenship is different than it was before. Here again in Philippians chapter 2 are things which we have inexhaustible access to in Christ. So therefore, because all those things are true, we must be of the same mind. We must be unified in him, walking with Christ, embracing our heavenly citizenship together. Paul reminds us that we those citizens of the various portions of Allen County, Ohio, hold our greater citizenship in heaven. And there are things that must be known regarding the citizens we encounter day to day. That there's a difference. Now, this idea of having dual citizenship is, in our, in our experience, a, a spiritual matter and then a, and a sort of practical material matter, right? But when the Philippians were reading this letter from Paul, they understood it in their own context as an illustration that they were living in. Because if you remember way back to when we started Philippians, which was a really long time ago, like September, right? You remember September? Wow. Um, one of the important things about being a Philippian was that you were also a citizen of where? Does anybody remember? Rome. Now, do you remember or did you just know that? Just knew, you're supposed to say you remembered because of that great message at the beginning. Just kidding. 
So they, yeah, they, they shared in citizenship in Philippi, but they also shared in citizenship in Rome. So they understood when Paul was saying, look, you're citizens of heaven. They're saying like, oh, it's kind of like how we're citizens of Philippi, but we're also citizens of Rome. That hasn't changed. Now, again, when I moved from Akron, I am no longer a citizen of Akron. Well, they determined that because of many factors, of course. But the biggest thing is, I don't live there. I don't work there. We don't go to church there. We don't do anything there except for visit our family now. But when we become citizens of heaven, we remain citizens of earth, but our greater and truer citizenship is with Christ. So, here in this passage that we're looking at, Paul has provided for us three perspectives in order to consider a citizenship mindset. First of all, there's inspiration from gospel examples around us, those who walk according to the example we see in the apostles. There's also motivation as we interact with people who are citizens merely of the physical world around us. And there is also a, a hope of transformation from the Savior who now lives in us by his Holy Spirit, changing us from one degree of glory to the next, and will one day return and perfect us in his image. And that's a kind of a cool thing to, to jump ahead, not that I should, but at the end of this passage, it says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And in another place, Paul says that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And you think about when Christ returns, you will be changed. You are going to be different because he will be here in a brand new and much more complete way. So that's where we're going, looking at those three things. Being a citizen of this heavenly kingdom must change our priorities, our perspectives, and in these ways we eagerly await the Savior who is to come. So, verse 17, inspiration from other believers around us. Perhaps the most popular definition of this word imitation that Paul uses, as he says, imitate me, is imitation is the most sincere form of what? Flattery. Anybody know who said that? You just did. Yes. Love it. Okay, so new question. Who said it first? Anybody know? Lincoln? That's a good guess. I wish it was Lincoln. He's an interesting person. I probably could have used the quote, went to Lincoln, and said something much more better than what I'm about to say. Maybe I should have just said it was Lincoln. That, that would have been better. Other guesses? Mark Twain? That sounds right, but I don't think it is. Plato? Hmm. Nope. Not Plato. It was, of course, your favorite, Charles Caleb Colton. Right? Sounds like a country western singer, but he's not. He's actually not a very important person. As I've looked into him, his Wikipedia page is very, very short. Okay? He was actually a clergy. But it's fascinating. Um, it's, it's an, he was an important guy, but not very important. I mean, important enough that we, name, we refer to him by his first, middle, and last name and that we quote him often with these kind of things. But he was basically a less interesting guy beyond the collection of witty quotes that are still referred to by many today. It actually seems like a self-serving kind of thing to be said. Because here he has said, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, and we have just imitated him in one sense by reciting his quote. Now, we're called together to join in imitating Christ-like examples. So what if Paul, you don't have to answer this out loud, but be thinking, what if Paul in the book of Philippians might we see worthy of imitating? 
as you consider what Paul has written thus far? Does anything come to your mind? Do you notice something that Paul says or that Paul explains about how he feels about the church or something along those lines? We find in the book of Philippians the character of a Christian in beautiful, Holy Spirit-inspired words. It's an example to follow as we who are blood-bought saints of Christ seek to know him better and to give him the worship he deserves. Here's a great reason to return and review what we've learned so far in Philippians. So what do we see? His affection for the church. His confidence in the work of God from start to finish. His desire for the gospel to be preached, even if at his own expense. His commitment in the phrase, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His endurance through persecution and even imprisonment. His joy in church unity. His embrace of suffering to know Christ. We can look at the list of all these things that are worthy of imitation in Paul, but we can't keep our eyes on him in the way the Philippian church did. Even if after writing this, they never saw him again, they could always remember their time with him. We don't have Paul. Who do we have? Question I pose to you. Huh? One another. One another. We have one another to look to as examples. Now, if you're like me, hopefully your first response is, just for the sake of relating to me in this, in this moment, um, thinking about being a, a Christian that others might look to to imitate should be terrifying in one sense, right? You would look at my life and try to think, okay, I want to I live my Christian life like so-and-so does. That could be a little bit intimidating. It can be a little bit, you know, like, I, I feel like maybe you're setting yourself up for failure to look at my life and to consider imitating me. But you're right, who we have is who you see here today and other Christians that you know. We have the word of God, which shows us what is worthy in the character of Paul. And if we see these things in others around us, then there we can look to and imitate each other. Imitation of those around us is not the end goal, though. We imitate so others that come after us will have someone to imitate in us. Make sense? So we do not simply imitate others so that we can perfect what we believe is our, our ideal Christian lifestyle. But it moves beyond because we have to remember that we are here to make disciples who make disciples. And therefore, we have to be disciples who make disciples. So imitation of other Christians around you is not simply for your own benefit of your Christian walk, though it does benefit your Christian walk. It is also not for the boasting up of the person you're imitating. Because you've got to realize who Paul is here. Paul is not one who would... would consistently be saying, look to me, look how great I am. When he says, imitate me, what we know from the rest of the book is, everything about Paul is about Jesus. And so Paul can say, yeah, imitate me. And when the Philippians are reading this and, and hearing it read in their, in their midst, they're thinking, we should imitate Paul. Why? Because Paul's really great. We love Paul. No, that was the Corinthians problem, remember? Remember Paul said, you know, a lot of you are sitting there saying like, I'm of Paul and I'm of Peter and I'm of so-and-so. I'm a disciple of all these people. No, the Philippians would have to know from everything that Paul's written so far, he's not about himself, but about Christ. So desiring to be an imitable Christian does not mean we have to be prideful in that. 
Paul says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, so he clarifies it a little bit in that second phrase. First of all, he extends it to beyond just himself, to those who carry that same example, the example you have in Paul, in the, the others that Paul is referring to, the apostles perhaps. Well, who is in Paul? Yeah, <laughs> the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is living in Paul. So who is the example really from? Who is the real example? It's Jesus. Yeah, right? See, that's going to be the answer a couple times, right? Good. So, we don't have to necessarily say, oh, well, if I'm going to try to live an imitable life, a life that's worthy of imitation in my Christian walk, that's just going to be too much of a danger of pride for me. Tough. Deal with it. You have to deal with your pride. You can't say, no, I'm too weak. I'm too, I'll be too prideful if I start discipling people. I'll start thinking I'm way too much of... Well, yeah, you know what? You probably will. I think most Christians struggle with pride when they start discipling other people. If you don't, then you're kind of weird. But there's a difference between a struggle and just, and, and certainly there's a difference between a struggle with pride and seeking out pride in something like this. And if our goal is to make Christ known and to, and to, to be used by the Holy Spirit to create Christ's likeness in another person's life. Now, notice again, I said, be used by the Holy Spirit. It is not you, it is not me who does the discipling truly. God, through us, does that discipling, right? If we imitate Paul, we are imitating one who is about the life of godliness Christ has made in him. So to truly imitate him, we have to have that in our sights as well. If Pride is an issue in discipling someone. I'm not truly imitating Paul because we can see from his letters that he was one who fought against pride aggressively. He was violent against his sin. And so we ought to be as well. Remember Paul considered in Philippians chapter 1, verses 22 through 26, whether it would be better for him to leave the world and be with Jesus or to remain and serve the church. Do you remember when he talked about that? And ultimately, what he said was, hey, if I had the choice, I would actually choose to stick around because there's still fruitful labor that I can do for the church. And we see this in Paul's character in the book of Philippians that he's one who cares about the church, even so much that, hypothetically, if Jesus came to him and said, hey, you want to just go now? Or do you want to stick around? He's saying, I would say, oh, it's far better to be with Christ, but it's more beneficial for them if I stick around. It wasn't to say, hey, look, Jesus, I'll see you in a little bit, but I got some more work to do over here. No, uh, he's, he's, he wants to stick around. He wants to continue to grow the church because he loves the church, because he loves Jesus. And as one songwriter said, if you love Jesus, you must love the church. So Paul's desire was to remain and to be an example worthy of imitation. So we need to ask ourselves, am I an imitable example of the Christian life? And if not, the next question is, what do I need to do to get there? Because again, when Paul tells us here to imitate him and to keep our eyes on those who carry on the example that we find in him, it's not enough just to say, okay, I'm going to imitate him and that's the end of it. Well, if I'm truly imitating Paul, Paul was making disciples, and so I need to do the same. 
A Christian's desire in worshiping Christ should be linked to a desire to call others to worship him as well. If Christ has called you to be his, he has simultaneously called you to walk with others in being his as well. It's not optional. Too often we think wrongly of discipleship, I think. That it is somehow us showing others some man-made wisdom of living life in a more enjoyable or, or wise or impressive way of our own doing. In fact, I can confess that when I think about discipleship, oftentimes my mind goes to, okay, I'm going to create a plan, I'm going to do this, I'm going to show people how I do these things. No, discipleship is not me creating something to help people walk in. Truly, discipleship is one believer saying to another, let's walk with Christ together. Let's sacrifice everything to know him more together. Let's work to bear good fruit together. Let's kill our sin together. Let's make him known to a lost culture together. It's a story about a Christian um, some years ago who reached out to an older believer. He was sharing some of the things going on in life as he was striving to follow Jesus. And after at least 10 minutes of relaying his story of his life situation, he looked to the older believer and basically said, what should I do? Give me advice. He looked to him with hope in his eyes, thinking that here's somebody who's walked with Christ longer than I have. They've got to be able to tell me something about what I should do. And the older believer looked at him and said, sounds like you need to pray about that. And it wasn't one of those moments where you just kind of, it wasn't like a mic drop moment of like, hey, the Christian life is simple. It's praying and reading your Bible. That's it. It was a moment of disappointment in the younger disciple's life. That he had he'd bore his soul in front of this other believer and said, help me, I want to walk with Christ better. I need advice, I need, I need help, I need something. And the guy said, I don't know, maybe you should pray. It's a little bit disappointing. But the reason that I share that story is because there are some times, I think, and many, maybe, maybe you can relate with me on this, that thinking about discipling someone and committing to discipleship seems like something that we just can't do, that we're just ill-equipped for. How am I going to be able to connect with another believer and encourage them to stand firm in Christ when I don't even know if I necessarily know what I'm talking about? Okay. So I came up with four things, and these are not, this is not like the big answer to how to disciple anybody, but they're things that came to my mind as I thought about discipling on my own. And, and basically, what I'm giving is hopefully like an entry-level idea of discipleship, because i got to be honest with you, I still feel like I'm at entry level when it comes to discipleship. So, one, identify with the other person. Relate a similar situation to show you understand or express that you see how such and such a thing might be difficult. Okay? We can all do that. Somebody shares something with you or if you, you say, hey, what's going on in your life? And, and suddenly, you know, conversation starts and you look and you're like, I don't know what to say here. You don't need to have an answer. You need to be able to relate to that person or at least, you know, say, hey, look, I, I can see that that is very difficult. Secondly, encourage them. You can share scripture. Or, if you don't have a scripture that immediately comes to mind, share some truth about the gospel. If you're a Christian, you know the gospel. You know that Jesus died for your sins in your place so that you might live with him for eternity. <coughs> Excuse me. If you know Christ, he is your hope and your joy and your satisfaction in him. 
If you don't have a Bible verse that immediately comes to mind, or if you can't flip through and find something, share the gospel with that person in some way. Relate their story to how Jesus matters. Even if it's just simply to say, look, I get that that thing in your life is really difficult. I'm going to pray for you that you trust in Christ in the midst of this. That is encouraging, right? Even just to say that, even just to give a, a morsel of gospel truth to somebody. Thirdly, pray for them. Either right there or later on, and then let them know you did it. Commit to at least one other time to pray again for them. Okay? So, praying for them, boy, you might say, I'm not quite ready to just sit down and pray for somebody right on the spot. Okay, don't. Here's the truth. Is it, is it helpful to pray with that person you're praying for? Is that, a, is that an encouraging thing? Yeah, of course it is, right? Is that the only way your prayer for that person is effective? No. Why? Why is that? Because when I pray, I'm asking God to move on my behalf, on the behalf of someone else, for his glory. And I'm not the acting agent in prayer. I am active, but the decisive action comes from God who answers that prayer. So pray with them, pray later. You know, maybe, maybe if, it's, if praying with somebody seems like too big of a task, work up towards it. Say, hey, can I pray for you real quick? Okay. And then just say, Lord, help them. Amen. Don't say it that quick and that, you know, obviously, like flippantly, but make it a simple prayer. It doesn't have to be impressive. And then go pray for them again so that when you see that person the next time, you can come up honestly to them and say, hey, I prayed for you. How are things going with such and such a thing? Does that make sense? Now, back to the issue of pride, because it was actually brought up when I was writing this. I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, what do you do about that though? Because like, there are times where I feel like I talk to people and I say, hey, I've been praying for you. And I almost sound like I'm coming across as very pious or, or you know, something like that. You might, you might come across in a pious way. What matters is, as we've talked about before, the truth, your motive, and then your delivery. So if it's true that you prayed for them and that, would be, that should be helpful for them to know, then tell them that you prayed for them. That's what truly happened. Your motive matters. Whether people understand your motive or not is not on you. It's on the receiving end of that, right? You have a responsibility to, in an effort, in an effort like this, to attempt not to come across as prideful, but you ultimately can't control people's response. So tell somebody that you prayed for them. Because I know when people tell me that they've prayed for me, that lifts me up incredibly. Even if only just to say, boy, I better get my act together because people are praying for me. Lastly, check up on them. Reach out with a phone call, a text, or in person and ask about the situation. Have enough time between this and step two that you may be more prepared to share the word with them or have, oh boy, I can't read that. <laughs> or have, what is that word? Oh no, I hope I have it in my notes. That you may be more prepared to share the word or have asked advice of another believer in how to encourage them. Sorry about that. I didn't check the slides before they went up. Um, so this last step is, is, is probably, hopefully, the most encouraging thing. Because in discipleship, you might have one moment where you get to disciple somebody, and you walk away, and you go, I really blew it there. That was not very good. I didn't have a good Bible verse. It didn't make sense what I was saying. I mean, guys, I do this a lot of Sundays after I come down from the sermon. Okay, I'm like, okay, I'm, praise the Lord, there's another Sunday to come, right? Um, 
in discipleship, it's not a one-shot option. It's not a one-shot opportunity. You say, here's your only chance to disciple this person. The, the general model of discipleship is, I'm ready to commit to the Lord that I'm going to walk with people through the Christian life. And if you have one discipleship opportunity that doesn't seem to go the, well, the way you wish it would, two things. One, know that God's the one who's working in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And secondly, he's going to give you another chance. Maybe not even with the same person, but with another person to, to, to be more effective in discipleship. So check up on that person. Follow up with them. Starting conversations can be really difficult sometimes. I understand that. But if you've had a conversation already, you can always refer back to that one that you've already had. And in the midst of that, as you go from conversation to conversation or discipleship opportunity to discipleship opportunity, you have time in the midst of that as you're praying for that person to be better equipped to serve them the next time around. So this method doesn't require a vast knowledge or great experiences. It requires an obedient heart before God and a love for other believers. And if you have even the beginnings of that, those two things, you can walk through those four steps to inspire another believer to do the same. We don't need to fear discipleship, either due to the need of the disciple or our own sense of preparedness. I need to be discipled, and I need to be discipling. As we embrace this call, we embrace the powerful graces God has made available to us to empower discipleship. So we have the word, everything I need to know in order to be discipled, and to disciple is right here. We have the church, there are others around me of whom God is working on to make into disciples who make disciples. I'm not alone. We have prayer. We have a never-ceasing open access to God. My, one of my big prayer requests as I've been thinking about 2020 is just a simple one. Lord, disciple me and disciple others through me. Just been like clinging to that this past week at least. Just say like, Lord, disciple me and disciple others through me. Regardless of, of how well I'm equipped, re equipped, regardless of what's going on in my life, you might wonder why, <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to wonder, why are we spending so much time right now thinking about this fear of discipleship? Because I think there are two reasons that we don't disciple people. And I think the biggest one is fear. I think we're just afraid that we're not equipped enough or that we're afraid we're going to say something wrong or we're afraid we might do more damage than good. Whatever that fear might be, that's probably the number one thing. If you're sitting here thinking, like, I'm not afraid of discipling, well, then you need to get out and do it. Because if there's not a... It, there's, if there's an element of fear in there, there's something that maybe we need to work on in regards to that. But if, if you're not afraid, but discipleship isn't a primary mark of your life, you know, the, the, the cycle of life that you walk through, then maybe you need to repent. Maybe. Now, I know time is, is a difficult thing to a lot, especially to people outside of our families and things like that. But in 2020, we have a new year, a new clean slate to look at and wonder, am I going to imitate other believers around me and become a believer that others can imitate as well? Am I going to be a disciple who is being discipled and who is discipling? And I can tell you, I have not prioritized it as well as I could. A lot of times out of fear, to be completely honest, self-doubt, all those things creep in. But it's not enough to just say, hey, I'm afraid I'm not going to do it. We have to move forward in a direction of saying, I'm going to trust the Lord to empower me to disciple his people and to be discipled. So think about what God will do if you ask such a question. Will he empower you by his spirit to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Will he give you victory and humility to count others more significant than yourselves? Will he fill your heart with joy and anticipation, knowing he will complete the work he began in you? 
and continually works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure? Will he empower you to do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you may shine as lights in the world? Will he grow you in endurance to press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ? Will he put people in your life you can look to as disciples to learn from and disciples to teach? All that Paul has called us to thus far in Philippians, God will provide as we trust him. I've quoted Augustine a couple times, but I think it fits one more time. Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. So look to the word of God for your calling and for your equipping. Imitate those who walk according to the example that was in Paul from Christ. Secondly, verses 18 and 19, looking at a motivation to be aware and grieve for the lost. As we come to this verse, these verses, let's note the emotion behind what Paul is saying. In verse 18, I've often told you about them and now tell you even with tears. He's recalling some who walked as, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, who apparently one time did not walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's a few different possibilities, but it seems that's the most likely thing, that he's referring to people who lived among the church at Philippi and are now living contrary to the gospel of Christ. So Paul has given us something else of the example that we ought to follow, the, the example we ought to imitate from the last verse, his compassion for the lost. This compassion comes straight from the heart of Christ in passages like Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Here Jesus was talking explicitly to those who were obvious enemies of his cross, the scribes and Pharisees. And he describes them in that chapter as ones who tie up heavy burdens and place them on the shoulders of others, who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in the faces of others while not even entering themselves, who travel across the sea to win a convert and make them twice as much a child of hell, who exalt gold over the temple, who are particular about tithing but reject the larger matters of justice and mercy, and who are ultimately whitewashed tombs carrying only deadness inside and reject God's message in Christ. Read Matthew 23 sometime again and realize that what Jesus says to these guys is really, really harsh. They are cast as enemies of the cross of Christ. And how did he feel about them? How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her children, but you were not willing. Interestingly, elsewhere, Paul says that we too were once enemies of Christ in Colossians 1, 21 through 22. It says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That was us before we believed in Christ. And that is the description of those who do not know him now. If no other reason be motivated by the fact that Christ has saved you from this state... Use that as motivation to tell others about this good news that you believe in. <clears throat> Whoever the unbeliever may be, our instruction is to be aware of the state of those who do not know Christ and to feel an aching compassion for them to know the Savior. And this is one of the defining traits of Christianity. Those who are against all we believe and even those who may wish to harm us for our faith are precisely those we are commanded to love backing up in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard this before. 
And here it is again. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who would even persecute you because you are mine, because you belong to Christ. Not with a condescending pity, with a genuine, weighty, and at times restless desire to see them come to the Savior. Alistair Begg said of this passage, Our citizenship is in heaven. The world has a God that they have to feed. Their worship goes down and in. Our worship goes up and out. So look at Paul's description. He gives us their final destination is destruction. Their idol is their belly, being fleshly, worldly desires. Their glory is their shame. What ought to be discreet is flaunted. And their perspective is, is a mindset on earthly things. They're unable to know beyond what they can see. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 14, we impart these words not taught by, sorry, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These are those who have boldly and unashamedly replaced God with themselves in their hearts and are a desperate picture of life apart from Jesus Christ. Those whom Paul described, describes serves as a warning and a support for why we must look to Christ-like examples. Paul speaks as though part of why their fate is so grim is because they did not join in imitating those disciple-makers around them. If Paul is speaking of people that the church may have known, he is in a sense saying, follow faithful Christians so you will not turn out like those who were among you before, but now walk as enemies of the cross. You may know some people in, in your walk with Christ who have abandoned the faith. When I became a Christian, uh, there were about 20 of us or so that, were, that, that all made a commitment to Christ and we were all going to church together. And within a couple years, people started to fade away back into worldly habits. And I can say, I thought about this earlier this week, that there were about 20 of us, and today I can count five of us who are still following Christ. One by one, these friends who seemed like they were Christians slowly faded back into the world. It's a terrible thing to experience because you love your friends and you fear what they are left to apart from Christ. It's terrifying. It's a huge motivation for us. Paul does not write to us and say, hey, look at how bad off these folks are who don't know Jesus, just so we can say, stinks to be them, oh well. This ought to be a motivation for us to get serious about our discipleship in the church and our evangelism outside these walls, so to speak. Don't neglect Paul's exhortation this morning. Stick with and imitate those who have the example of Christ and call a lost world of enemies of the cross of Christ to see him for who he is, to embrace the great joy of knowing him. Be motivated to compassion and zeal for the lost in light of where they stand before God. So Leonard Ravenhill, who's an old preacher who's since gone to be with the Lord, says this, the gospel is not an old, old story freshly told. It is a fire in the spirit fed by the flame of immortal love. And woe unto us if through our negligence to stir up the gift of God which is within us, that fire burns low. I think he's right. I, I'm not saying that you ought to walk away and think, wow, what a great message today or what a great whatever. No, but 
even just at this point of considering those who are lost in Christ. If you've looked at the word and, word and you've considered that there are people that you know that don't know Jesus and your heart is not stirred, Ravenhill says, woe to you. If your heart isn't even a little bit stirred, if you can walk out of here after considering it and just go back to normal life as if there was no change at all, maybe there's cause for concern about where your heart is. Thirdly, and lastly, the hope that we have to stand firm in the Lord until he returns and that when he returns, transformation comes. It comes for the whole world. He's going to make all things new. From heaven, we await a savior. Here Paul brings us the one, to the one-on-one matter of the return of Christ and what will happen to those who believe in him. What kind of reaction will you have when he returns, do you think? Part of us, in our joy of seeing him face to face, want to leap for joy, embrace him, and shout hallelujah and celebrate, right? Another part of our hearts, though, may consider in his return that we're not so prepared to see him as we would have liked to have been. There may be things about us that we wish we could have changed before he comes. You know, when company comes over at our house, um, we, like, maybe you can relate to this, we, we try to clean up a little bit more than we usually do things that we would leave around like dirty diapers on the side of the couch there or whatever we could try to make sure that those aren't around when people show up we vacuum we dust we finish dishes all to make an illusion that this is how it always is when our guests eventually come yet when christ returns nothing will be hidden there will be no moment to sit back and go oh let me read my bible real quick let me make sure i say a really good prayer let me make sure i disciple that person or reach out today is your chance right now is your chance to do those things to be ready for the return of Christ. And let me tell you this, if you, you could take motivation from a little bit of fear, that's okay, that's good. There's some fearful things that happen to those who don't know Jesus. But if you know Jesus today and, and you're hearing this and you're thinking about it, be motivated by joy. Be motivated by the fact that you know him and that you say, boy, I don't know what, where, how I got off track, but my life needs to be realigned with this idea into the coming year that Christ is worthy of all that I have, all that I am. I don't want to spend more time in his word. I want to spend more time in prayer. I want to spend more time with believers. And the truth is this, my friends, the excuses that we give that are often legitimate, I have to work, I have to do these things, I have tasks that need completed. David was talking about it this morning that there's, there's all sorts of things that stop us from Sabbathing, from stopping and resting and being restored in Christ. And I think that applies to our greater mission too. Because the truth is, if cleaning your house or going to work or fixing the car gets in the way, if it's truly something that inhibits your ability to disciple somebody, you need to quit your job, you need to sell your car, you need to sell your house, do whatever you need to do so that you can realign with God's main mission for you, which is to make disciples. Now, hopefully, you don't need to do all those things. Hopefully, you don't need to sell your car. Hopefully, you don't need to sell your house. So hopefully, you don't need to quit your job because those are things that God has given you to equip you into discipleship. But if we have a pattern, and I've seen this pattern in my own heart, if we have a pattern of saying, well, no, I can't get to discipleship or I can't get to evangelism because these things are in the way, and that pattern continues and continues and continues, then take my car, take my job, take my house, whatever it is, because my main reason for being here is to glorify Christ and make him known, make disciples everywhere I go. And when he appears, 
we will be changed. Everything will be changed. We will no longer live in this struggle that I'm describing for you, that we're, we're not going to have uh, this conflicting desires and, and, and an inability to, to organize our schedules, right? Whatever your challenge might be, those things will be done away with when Christ returns. That is our ultimate hope, is that Jesus is going to come back and we will be changed. He's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So stand firm in the Lord because he's going to complete what he started, Philippians 1.6. Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. That doesn't mean I'll see you at the beginning and I'll see you at the end. He's working in us today to help us reprioritize, to get a good citizenship mindset of where we are, what we have, and what we're supposed to do. You have imitatable, no, sorry, the word is imitable, <laughs> disciples of Christ around you. I'm looking at them, okay? Because even if you're a baby Christian who just started walking with Christ and you don't think you have much to offer, you might have a, a zeal that another person doesn't have, a newness, of, a freshness of the gospel that can encourage somebody who's walked with Christ for a long time. You, you have experiences, you have a unique situation of life where you know Christ and you have something to teach me about him. All right? God has equipped you. He's not going to call you to make disciples and say, good luck, hope you can figure it out. He's given you what you need. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles back there. If you don't have Christians in your life, get somebody's phone number and start texting them. There's all sorts of things. There's nothing that's not available to you that Christ would call you to use to make disciples. We do this with the motivation that Christ is returning. So uh, I missed the, the quote. So this is what Carson says, D.A. Carson, regarding the return of Christ. Genuine spirituality cannot live without an attitude that is homesick for heaven, that lives with eternity's values in view and eagerly awaits Christ's return. Well, how do we do that? How do I know if I'm eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, if I have an attitude of homesickness for heaven? If I'm homesick for heaven, it doesn't mean that I just hang out at a church all the time and read my Bible and do nothing else and live in a shelter. It means that I'm going around telling people because all I think about is wanting to be with Christ and wanting to make him known, wanting to give him what he deserves, which is my whole life laid out before him. Use it as you will. If we stand firm in the Lord, we have to plant our feet steady in the ground, the ground being like no other we've stood on before. So the old hymn says, His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Our soul's going to give way. Our flesh is going to give way. We're weak. We're unequipped for this. Seek the Lord. He will sustain you. You can stand firm in him.